Welcome to the Connect Church Podcast. Our mission at Connect Church is to help people find and follow Jesus. For more information on who we are and how we're doing just that, visit myconnectchurch.cc. Now, let's jump into this week's message from Pastor Blaine. Just a few moments. We're going to be in Mark chapter 1. I'll give you a moment to go ahead and turn there. In fact, I'm going to give you several moments to turn there because I want to kind of set set the stage for, for today and, and the culmination of this series where we're learning that God disciples us in different size groups, different, different contexts. Uh, I, I think of Adam walked with God in the cool of the day. I mean, what does that even mean? <laughs> that I, can you imagine what that, I don't even know what, I try to think about what that would look like. Is it Adam holding God's hand like this, or is there a presence with Adam? I'm, I mean, I, I don't know that we could possibly know. Noah received detailed directions from God. Um, what did that sound like? I mean, I, I don't know. Did he just sense what a cubit was, or did God really speak? Did he hear him? Abraham talked with God as a friend talks to a friend. That leaves me with a lot of questions about communing with with God. Lot had detailed conversations and received actually stern rebukes that kind of unsettled him. Uh, Moses argued with God relatively often. The prophets heard specific warnings and direction in words and in visions and in dreams and these interactions leave us saying, what's the formula to be able to have this, this communion, this, this personal interaction with God? And Daniel prayed three times a day, but we're not sure what that consisted of or what was said or what was received. But, but Scripture sets a very clear pattern. We see the importance of daily time and communion with God. It's modeled for us throughout Scripture. It's a habit as old as the very first human breath. It seems to be an obvious calling that we all sense when we're undistracted enough when we're still enough, when we're quiet enough, when we're alone enough. It's an odd thing that God speaks to us when we're still and when we're alone. And yet, believe it or not, those are the two scariest things in humanity is being alone and vulnerable. Humanity becomes terrified of isolation and aloneness. And so therefore, over a period of 6,000 years or so, we have developed an addiction to busy, to hurry, to more, to FOMO, to fear of missing out. We always want to be in the right place because we don't want anybody to have a experiential advantage over us. So often we're at things we don't want to be at because we don't want anybody to get ahead of us relationally. Our enemy has always known that that's our fear. I believe it has always been a a human fear ever since the the fall. And so Satan himself has started from the very beginning showing up to distract us from God by offering temporary solutions rather than long-term eternal solutions. 
Satan, remember, always offers the easy and temporary. And because of who we are, we, we fall prey to that so often. It's in quietness, stillness, in, in discipline, in personal time, over time, that we commune with God and he speaks with us. When you stop to think about busyness and distractions and the love of going and just having something to do and crowds and chaos and lights, movement, the desire to be included, perhaps sometimes even not wanting others to experience something that you can't maybe... You're invited to something and you can't really go, but you choose a way to go because you don't want those that are going to experience it to experience it without you. And so a lot of times we don't have any time in our calendar, any time in our schedule because we're always on the go. And if you ask somebody, do you have a daily time with God? The number one reason for not having one is I'm just too busy. I'm just too busy. And so what we plan to do in the morning when we wake up late because we were up too late the night before, the first thing that most people do is to check their phone and to see what their day is going to be like or who needed them through the darkness of the night. What did somebody do through the night that I need to see first thing in the morning? And then we say, well, I'm too busy now. I've got to get ready for work. And we go to work and we work all day long and we get home from work and we get busy and I'm just going to give, I'm going to give God time, my, my time when I go to bed at night. And so typically what ends up happening is we give God whatever leftovers we have. But listen, when you're busy, there are no such thing as leftovers. I think of Facebook. I, I, this is not a social media rant, although it's going to appear like that for a minute or two. I think of the algorithms that social media creates. The, the, the way that they make money, if you think that that is a way for you to connect socially, you are wrong. It is a way for people to make money. Everything is about money, okay? Just know that. Everything is monetized. And so it's an opportunity for ad, uh, ad, ad, advertisers to, to market. And if you think they're not listening, they are. They'll tell you they are. It, it is not surprising that they'll begin to post ads for things you just talked about. Because you, they are listening. They will tell you that, right? The people who design the algorithms will tell you that. Because it helps them understand who you are and it helps them understand what will distract you. It, because if you are distracted by it, you'll run out of time and advertisers will pay more money for the more time that you're on. And so from time to time, if you don't get a notification, they'll create one for you. So-and-so poked you. Well, poke them back, right? Now you've interacted a little bit. That's a little more money for them. We didn't cost you anything, but advertisers will pay more money. Or there is an event you might be interested in in your area. You didn't ask for that, but they want to see if they can distract you just a little bit. Or here are people you may know. There's all kinds of ways that they have created and what they're trying to do is just provoke a little distraction in your life. Provoke a little interaction. Now, let me tell you something. For somebody, and, and, you're, and you're probably not like me in this, but when I think about how social media uses the users, 
It angers the fire out of me. It makes me angry when I think that they think that I am so weak and so needy that I will respond to something that they think I should respond to. So I took it off my phone until I put it back on my phone. <laughs> I do that from time to time. just depends on how angry I am. But I, I, I use that as an illustration just to simply say this. This has been a long play for Satan. And no, I am not saying that Facebook is Satan or social media is Satan. What I am saying is that it works exactly the same way. Satan want, watches and he allows things in our life to distract us, to interact with things that, maybe not bad things, but they distract us from the thing. And it should anger us that he thinks we're so weak and so vulnerable and so manipulatable that we fall prey to it. And yet we continue to. We continue to. Well, maybe Sunday mornings we don't. Sunday mornings we take it off our phone, and then Monday mornings we reload back into the busyness. When you stop and see these distractions, these things, that this chaos, this unnecessary busy, this FOMO, this, this desire to belong and to be valuable by people is such a trap. And we long to get caught in it. You start thinking that that group of people, if I could just be invited to the things they go to. Oh, if I could just have what those people have. If I just worked harder. If I just had more. If, then I would be filled up. And once I'm filled up, then I will have the ability to be more committed in this area of my life. And I'm telling you that, that all of the distractions of the world, all the distractions of the world, all of the people of the world, all of the influences of the, of the world will not fill you. They are emptying you. Life automatically does that to us because of the fall, empties us. But our gas mileage in our life is significantly damaged when we don't take the time to refuel using the right fuel. Sometimes distractions are from God. Sometimes Jesus was distracted and that's where ministry was. But sometimes Satan distracts us, and he uses, us, uses them to keep us away from God. Sometimes something's created so that we will avoid not only God, but sometimes even ourselves as well. We get depleted. And only a God-centered person who personally knows the heart and the direction from God can discern the difference between, is this a God moment or is this a distraction? Born in 1623, uh, Blaise Pascal said, all, listen to this very closely. I don't often quote uh, people, but I want you to listen to this. All of humanity's problems, all is a really big word. All of humanity's problems stem from a man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. 
<laughs> I don't know if he's right or not. It seems like maybe a, uh, an exaggeration. It's a general statement, maybe an overstatement. But I'm telling you, I believe that the people of God need an awakening. The individual people of God need an awakening. We've depended so long upon programs and ministries and organizations that we have forgotten to be centered in the person of Jesus Christ ourselves. To commune with our creator instead of just benefiting from relationships. I think the church is asleep. Not this morning. Don't be offended. I think the church is asleep, and I'm afraid that the church sang the lullaby. We didn't mean to. In all of its hurry. I mean, it's just really what we've done for 100 years is we've exchanged the world's hurry for the church's hurry. Busy, busyness, serving. We've worn people out doing things, good things, that kept them distracted from great things. You should be a part of all those things. But I have been committed, we have been committed for a long time that if it doesn't make disciples, we're not doing it anymore. If it's not generating a closer walk with Jesus, we don't do it anymore. That's at least the litmus test. We may fail in that in some areas, and relationships are important. But those are also God things. Um, the idea that, that, that being busy will make you like Jesus is nonsense. The idea that programs will create disciple makers is nonsense. Let me tell you what will make the difference. Being in the presence of Jesus Christ will always make disciples. Being in the presence of Jesus Christ will always create Christ-likeness. It's a byproduct Christians and churches without Jesus become Pharisees. We can't help it. That's the only option. And we've been talking about how Jesus discipled people in groups, relationships, and different size relationships for different components of discipleship and disciple making. Different size groups has diff have different functions and receive from it different attributes that, is, that every disciple needs to flourish. We talked about the hundreds and how that, that creates motivation and inspiration in some direction. And, and large groups, medium-sized medium groups for this, uh, like groups of 70 or so, likeness that creates likeness and belonging, and we identify the kinds of friends that we need and who to teach and who to learn from. It's in these groups that we learn mission and service. Here we become to, to really see what, truth looks like and how it looks when it is applied to our everyday life and we hope as we hear and we share and we become mutual we begin to relate to one another 
When we get down into small groups, groups of 12 to 15 or so, we begin to not be friendly but to have friends. We, we work on prayer and learning to trust and relational connection, connectivity with one another, following up with one another. We cultivate mutual hearts and we really maximize the benefits of the one another's. And then even micro groups of three or four people We learn vulnerability, accountability, intimacy, significant growth begins to be seen in in this stage, and impact begins to follow. So in large groups, truth is the goal. In medium groups, the mission is the goal. In small groups, one another is the goal. And in micro groups, Christ-likeness is the goal. Now, if you're hoping to achieve one of these goals in the wrong size groups, it can't work. It doesn't produce it. And so many people are trying to, to take this group, for instance, and to become a disciple maker. And yet there are so many components that go into that. And often we feel like failures. We feel like we can't get it. We're not getting enough or we're not being fed or we're not whatever the excuse is. We walk away empty. We walk away saying, I need to learn more. I need to be there more. I need to, it's always an excuse for not replicating the heart of Jesus. And so when we look at Jesus' model for discipleship, we begin to see certain things. And I know when I talk about these different size groups, it's easy to say, well, I hate people. <laughs> I don't want to be in a group of three or four people. That sounds like the most hideous thing imaginable. And I would say to some people it may be. That's why it's important for us to know that we get to choose who we trust in those relationships. We get to choose where we're... Nobody's going to say, here's your people that you've got to confess all your sins to. Uh, unless you need that. Uh, we won't do that. I'm just kidding. But when you begin to compare the risk of staying the same to the process of becoming like Jesus, then all of the fears of relationships begin to minimize. Now, I want you just to put a pin in that for a moment, and we're going to shift gears just a little bit. Through, through these four groups, we move from what we believe to what we do and end at who we are. And each stage is critical to the development of a disciple who makes disciples. If we grow content in just plugging in sporadically, occasionally, or in only one of those contexts, I'm telling you, as a disciple of Jesus... We're going to be lopsided, and eventually it ends up in consumerism where being a disciple is about you rather than it being about Jesus. And church begins to be about self-help instead of Christ-likeness. Or it ends up in burnout where you just work, 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 work so hard to become something, but you're you're not receiving the tools that's necessary to become what it is we claim And so as followers of Jesus, we have to learn how to receive, and we also have to learn how to give. Those are the two parts of disciple-making, is learning to be a disciple who makes a disciple. Learning how to hear, learning how to teach. 
So today we're talking about a group, probably the most important group, and it's a group of one with one. That personal time with Jesus. 400 years after Pascal's quote regarding all of our problems stemming from our inability to sit quietly in a room alone, we shudder at the quietness of the 1600s when he penned those words. Can you imagine? When you think about, boy, 1600s, there wasn't anything to do. Well, of course, an old philosopher, mathematician would say something like that. And we just know Blaise Pascal died when he was 39 years old. Alone in a room. No, I'm just kidding. He didn't really. But it does seem that all around the world, life is more complicated and it's more anxious than ever before. It's not just you. And sometimes I think we ought to just be able to come together as a group and just go, wouldn't that be nice just to have a place to go and just, me too. We don't have the time to quote 400 year old mathematicians anymore. We're too busy sharing the newest, funniest meme that we just scrolled by. Funniest one I saw this week is my mortgage identifies as a student loan. I think that is absolutely hilarious. You don't have to laugh at it. You don't have to laugh at it. That's okay. I will laugh for us. I think it's hilarious. (laughs) So today I want us to call to the the group that all other groups demand must be first. And that's our personal daily time with God. I want you to kind of think of a funnel for a moment, okay? Think of a funnel. We see our, our corporate time here as the highest value. Now you don't have to agree with me here, okay? I'm just painting a broad, really broad picture. But most church people say, what's the most important thing that a church does? And we would say, well, that corporate meeting where everybody gets together, what part of your week does most people carve out for, for faith? I think we would all have to agree, Sunday morning gets the nod. And it should because, after all, that's when the disciples, after the res- resurrection, got together. And we find that pattern in Scripture over and over and, uh, and it's a right thing for us to value for certain. But the more and more mature, the deeper we dig into relationships. So you have those who attend church on a Sunday morning are more likely to be involved in a larger group that a church is providing, much more likely to do that if you're here on a Sunday morning than those who don't attend on Sunday morning. And for those that would be committed to a medium-sized group of, say, 70 or so, or multiple groups of 70 or so, then they are more likely to make connections there and see the value of a group of 12 to 15 that they can live life with and learn to trust. And for those that learn how to trust, it's a whole lot easier to learn humility and vulnerability. So the more mature we learn things, the more easier it is for us to dig deeper and deeper into relationships. So that's, that's why I call it a funnel. It gets narrower and narrower the more mature we think we are. But there is a, a defining time 
a, a pinnacle time that, that often is put off or it's avoided because we begin to trust these early, I mean, earthly relationships and that these relationships will begin to do the work for us. Now, let me stop for just a moment. Preaching. Uh, there is no substitute for your personal time with the Lord. If you're hoping to be involved with a group so that you don't have to do your own homework, it's not going to work well. Like going to a Sunday school class and learning from a Sunday school teacher in a large group or medium-sized group is no substitute for your own personal time with the Lord. Or if you sit down with a Bible study in a small group and you're learning after some Bible scholar, that is no substitute to sitting down in the presence of Jesus Christ personally and being able to know what the Word of God says from His own Spirit. There's no substitute for that. Groups can't do spiritual formation in you. They provide the rails, but you have to bring the overflow of your life with Jesus Christ. And that comes every day. Spending time, cultivating the best time, and giving it to Him. This is where the funnel begins to work in reverse. And actually, as soon as it drips, it, be, it, has, it has a different, a different life. God draws us into relationships. We're not necessarily drawn to him through those relationships. So it's like the Lord draws us to himself through people. If we don't go all the way into his presence, we just learn to appreciate his stuff, his truth, but not necessarily him. It's in our personal time with God that, that we gain identity, who we really are. And if there is, I think, a, a major missing ingredient in the world, especially, I would say, in Christianity, it's that we don't know who we are. We forget so quickly who we are. Who empowers us? Who directs us? Who owns us? So it's in this personal time with God. And you cannot, I'm telling you, if you find identity in a small group, you're going to have the identity of your small group. If you have the identity of, of this, if this is where you find your identity, then people say, well, who are you? Well, I'm Connect Church because this is where I find my identity. But to be able to find your identity in Jesus Christ alone, that's where growth occurs. That's where transformation occurs. And once you begin to experience that transformation, it actually empowers everything else. It, it, it springs life. So, you know, you, you go into Jesus, you find out who you are, your priorities, your direction, your, your purpose, your meaning in life. And then, you're, then you find that micro group of three or four. And now, because I can trust God and I am clean, I am clean, I am forgiven, I'm right with him, it empowers that little group of humility and accountability and those places where you can find challenge. And then you can move into that group of 12 and you can speak with authority and pray with power and begin to see life change occur in other people's lives. And when you begin to see that, you take those groups into the larger groups and you begin to see help being given, not just received, uh, uh, wisdom being imparted and not just asked. You begin to, to move all the way through. And when we're in here, we're not trying to stir people up to feel something. We're bringing the overflow of emotion 
from disciple making all week long. We bring it with us. You see how the difference is, is when you've been with Jesus, every other relationship is empowered with that. So you begin to, some people may be here today because you're needy. Welcome, me too. There's parts of me that's incredibly needy and I need to hear from some of you about some things in my life. And I need to live life with some of you. And I need to know that you're praying for me. And so I walk through that funnel, very needy. But in my time with Jesus, I also have some answers. I also have some direction. And ministry then becomes to be mutual. So I can be a giver. I'm needy as I work my way down. But I am a giver, a peacemaker as I work my way up. Now listen, if all of us neglect our personal time with God, it's going to be a pretty needy place. And the people who are spending time with God are going to be a pretty overworked people, always providing answers for everybody. And that's not what church is designed to be. It's to be a place of one another, a place of mutual ministry, a place of God seeking for one another, and a place for the world to be able to see a different culture than what it has been able to manufacture. So our personal time with God is what empowers all of life. And you can watch the biblical saints all the way through the Old Old Testament and the New Testament, but we don't know exactly what that personal time with God looks like until Jesus comes on the scene. Now, lots of people have had communion with God, but Jesus models it for us. He modeled the kinds of habits and rhythms of life that we need. Even as as God in human flesh, he prioritized time alone with the Father. Now, if Jesus, being God, could fill himself up, why would Jesus prioritize time with the Father? Because time with the Father is what not only filled Jesus, but anything short of that will not fill us. Jesus gave his first and his best moments, not the leftovers. So if we're going to say that we're a Christian like Christ, if we're a disciple, an imitator of Christ, then we need to give our first and best moments to seeking the Father as well. We only have glimpses of Jesus' habits and and personal spiritual practices in the Gospels. But what we do have is is very intentional. And it's interesting that Jesus never teaches it. You know, they say, teach us to pray. Jesus said, well, pray like this. And he gives them a, a formula, if you will. But Jesus never taught how to have time with the Father. Jesus modeled it. He modeled it. He showed them. And so that's what we kind of get. It's modeled through his life. We don't exactly know what God means for us to know. In just the perfect detail. But we have so much about Jesus' personal relationship with the Father. And why he lived. And where he was fueled. And what he was fueled by. In fact, we know more about this from Jesus than anyone else in Scripture combined. And the model that we have of Jesus' habits is cross-cultural and applicable in every context, in every generation. How Jesus communed with the Father translates everywhere for all time. So the healthy Christian is neither isolated 
nor communal. Introverts may say that true faith is lived isolated away from people. You know, like, like the monks would say, be far away from distractions and buried in solitude. Extroverts would say that true faith is lived among people and in the streets of ministry and service. The truth is, there's a balance. And you begin to watch Jesus knowing when to retreat and when to reenter. Jesus was the master of knowing when to be filled and when to feel. And we can only learn that balance in our lives as we spend personal time with the Father. Okay, Mark chapter 1. How long was that? 30 minutes. But I'm almost done. No, that's not even true. I want you to think it's true, uh, but, but no, really, it's Mark chapter 1. <laughs> Verse 29, and immediately he, Jesus, left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now, Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and he took her by the hand, lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, by that time, everyone had heard about what had just happened with uh, with Peter's mother-in-law. At sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. The whole city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Verse 35, And rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. I want you to notice how Jesus withdrew to a desolate place to commune with the Father and then return to the bustle of daily tasks and the needs of others. Now, if we're going to be like Jesus, then we need to carve out time in every day for spiritual refilling. Enjoying God in stillness. And then we re-enter when we are re-centered with the right priorities, the right identity, the proper direction of His voice and the purpose for our day. I want you to listen quick. I want to quote another famous philosopher, uh, Stephen King. Stephen King uh, wrote a book. It's it's decent, (laughs) like I know anything about this. Uh, But he talks about dealing with daily distractions as he writes uh, a, a book on how to write for new writers. Here's what he says. If possible, there should be no telephone in your writing room. Certainly no TV or video games for you to fool around with. If there's a window, draw the curtains or pull down the shades unless it looks out at a blank wall. For any writer, but for the beginning writer in particular, it is wise to eliminate every possible distraction. But you need the room and you need the door. And you need the determination to shut the door. (laughs) I mean, the context is different, of course, right? But Stephen King gets it. We live in a day when our personal lives with God is, uh, uh, well, when do you pray? Well, I pray when I'm in the shower. 
Uh, or some people, and again, I don't know, so don't feel personally beat up, but you know, I pray when I'm driving. Or I pray, some people would even go so far as say, well, I just stay in a posture of prayer all day long. No, you don't. Would you please stop saying that? You don't do that. Nobody does that. And, and I would imagine that your prayer life is pretty shallow if you're driving while you're trying to commune with your creator. I don't know that that's giving him our best time. And if the best you can do is washing your hair while you're communing with the healer, we might have some priorities out of place. If that's the best time you can carve out to commune and to be transformed, we're probably too busy. Too busy. Patting ourselves on the back because we said some formulaic words early in the morning. We need better. We need more. We need deeper. Jesus is in an undisturbed, desolate place, free of distractions. It's a vital part of Jesus' daily time with the Father, but it was a vital place of Scripture in his life. I'm not going to be able to go through all of this, but Jesus is the living Word, but he modeled the written Word. Obviously, Jesus didn't walk around from, from village to village, city to city, town to town with a, his own personal copy of the Bible, like most of us could do today. But he heard what was taught by his parents when he was young. He heard what was read aloud in the synagogue, what his mother would sing to him. And he lived out what he had put to memory. And throughout his recorded ministry, every evidence, we see evidence over and over of a man that is ultimately and utterly captivated by what is written. And, and so the word of God must be paramount in the life of our quiet time with God, hearing from him as well. It, it begins to clear the clutter and it provides light as we need it. Memorizing scripture then is paramount to disciple-making and Christ-following. From the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry, Jesus retreated to the wilderness for solitude and obedience. And there, you remember, he was tempted and tested by, by the devil himself. And what did Jesus use as the sword in defense of that temptation and testing? It is written. It is written. It is written. He didn't pack a Bible up there with him. He didn't carry all the scrolls of the Old Testament up there with him. He had them right here that came from his overflow of his time with the Father. He returned from the, from the wilderness and he went to his hometown of Nazareth. He went into the synagogue and he began to read Isaiah chapter 61 verses 1 and 2. And he presented himself as the one that was being talked about there today. This scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus identified John the Baptist as he of whom it is written. And he cleared the temple of money changers on the grounds of multiple passages of Scripture, what is written. He rebuked using, quoting Scripture. Every step of the way to Calvary, we see it over and over. He knew everything that was going to happen, and he put it to memory as it was written, especially in the Gospel of John, about a dozen different passages as it is written, because Jesus knew what was about to happen, not because he was infinitely knowledgeable, because he cloaked his deity, but because he was a student of Scripture. And he knew the prophecies. The Son of Man goes as it is written, Mark chapter 14. 
And he said, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. Jesus didn't have a Bible tucked under his arm. As he walked, as he prayed, he lived it. His life and his disciple-making flowed out of his personal time with the Father. And if you don't have one, you won't be one. He lived by what is written. What amazing opportunity we have today. I'm not bad-mouthing phones and I, I dig social media. You can pull up the scripture on your phone and to be able to read that and ponder that and meditate on that. Let's go back to Mark 1. Verse 28 says, after his fame spread everywhere and the whole city was gathered at the door, verse 33, Jesus did something I think that's really, really unexpected. Uh, so, so Jesus, I don't, we don't know all the details and, and some of this, you know, it's just me trying to make sense of the context. But it seems that many, many people are still standing outside and they had to come to an end of a day and we get some rest and everybody takes some, some naps. And early in the morning... Everybody expecting to start where the day ended. Jesus is already gone from the house. Jesus is already in a desolate place receiving the best from the Father by giving the Father his best, the first. Now, what you would expect is, again, everybody waking up saying, uh, somebody get Jesus. There's now serving number 42. And Jesus isn't there. Simon's like, well, I don't know. He's our house guest. I bet I know where he's at. I bet he's at a desolate place. So he goes to see Jesus. Where, you know, where, where are you at? People are asking about you. They're ready to get this, this day of healing ministry going. Jesus said, you know what? Let's go to the next towns. We're not going to go back to ministry. Because in the overflow of my time with the Father right now, the Father is directing us to go this way. But if Jesus hadn't had that time... The expectation would be get right back into the minutia and the monotony of 42, 43, 44, 45, now serving, now serving. And that's a good thing. These are good things, but they're not the thing. The thing is unity with the Father. What does the Father want? No, the Father is sending us to other towns. The Father is sending us to other towns where I can preach the gospel and give this to some other people. Not, let's go back and finish what we started. <laughs> so there are some things that time with the Father gives us priorities and the direction for the day. Luke also makes it unmistakable that this pattern of retreat and reentry was a part of the ongoing dynamic of, of Jesus' uh, humanity. Uh, Luke 4.42, Jesus departed and went to a desolate place. You know, they, were, they were looking for Jesus and they knew he would be in the desolate places. In Luke chapter 5, verse 16, not just once, but many, many times, regularly he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. After, the, after the, the death of John the Baptist, Jesus withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But even there, the crowds began to pursue him. You remember that? And he didn't despise them. It was at that moment that there was a reentry moment. And in that moment, he began to have compassion on them and he healed their sick. That's in Matthew 14. Jesus knew the pattern and the rhythm of what was God's distraction and what was going to be a burden to his 
purpose. His habit was daily retreats, but sometimes reentry was in his face, and he loved people, and he took that as the Father's will. After the feeding of the 5,000s, after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up to the mountain by himself to pray. So what was written powered his life. And then when he withdrew, it was to speak to his father in prayer. At times he went by himself to be alone, and he went to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God, Luke 6, 12. His disciples saw him leave to pray, and later they watched him return. They watched the ebb and the flow of Jesus' power being pivoted upon his personal time with the Father. And they envied Jesus' balance. And they complained about the need to minister to these people. You remember they said, just do some signs and wonders and all these people will believe. And Jesus said, no, 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 that's, that's, that's not the way. And then there were other times where they're like, we need to just do all these signs and wonders and just heal all these people. And there were other times like, God, get these people away from us, Lord. And listen, that's what begins to happen when you don't walk in the balance, right? People are needy and they are needy. And you begin to get frustrated with them on both sides. Listen, when you begin to work in the flesh and you don't walk out that balance, I can tell you as a minister, sometimes you forget. And no matter what you do, you get emptied. And there's always the need for more ministry. That's how we often lived. Unbalanced Christ-likeness always leads to Pharisaism and criticism. But Jesus just didn't pray for people. Jesus prayed with people too. In fact, his praying for people led to praying with people. Uh, Jesus, uh, the disciples actually watched him model that at his baptism. And he laid his hands on the little children and he drove out demons and he prayed with his men and he, he prayed alone and his men might be nearby and they would hear him pray. He would, they would hear what he would say. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, this is in Luke 9, the disciples were there with him. He's praying alone, but the disciples were there watching, listening to the model. He took Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And the night before he died, he said to Peter, I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. All of John 17 is Jesus' praying for his disciples in earshot so that they can hear in the garden. He not only modeled prayer, but he told them also how to pray. They wanted to pray like him. No one prayed like him. And Jesus said, pray then like this. And he not only assumed that they would pray, he commanded that they pray. Pray for those who persecute you. Pray for those who abuse you. Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest. Pray without showing any posturing or arrogance. He warned against those who, for a pretense, make long prayers. He told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and to not lose heart. He also modeled fasting in this time. He assumed that they would fast. He said, when you fast, not if you fast. Personal time with God is more important than the most important things. Jesus didn't only retreat to be alone with God. And I say that for us not to be able to say, well, that's Jesus. That's not me. I mean, Jesus, come on. Jesus also commanded his disciples to do the same. Mark 3, Luke 9, Mark 6. 
Jesus invites his men to join him, saying, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. Mark actually tells us, For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. It's a very important thing. And it's used as an extreme illustration of just how busy they'd been. And they went away in a boat to a desolate place by themselves. Sometimes the only private place was on a boat in the middle of desolation. But resting and refilling from the ebb and flow of giving and receiving. Receiving from the Father so that there's something to give. And when we give of ourselves, it's good. And most Christians are content of giving of themselves. But when we give of what we receive from God, that's when it becomes spiritual and life-giving. It's good to give. But when you give from the overflow of God, it's spiritual. It's life-giving. And by the way, this isn't an excuse to spend time with God on a boat. In the Gospel of John, Jesus, as his fame spreads, retreated for more populated settings to invest in his men more desolate, distract, uh, less distracting places. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus actually taught all of his hearers, including us, not only give without show and fast without publicity, but to find our private place to seek our Father's face. He said, when you pray, go to your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. He taught it from the very beginning. That's the first sermon he preached. He taught personal time before he even taught them how to pray. So notice what Jesus seeks. Communion with the Father. Communion with the Father fills us up. We can't be satisfied with attending church or satisfied with belonging to groups. That will never fill us. It will empty us. But when we spend time alone with the Father, that's what refuels us, refills us, gives us power for every other moment and every other relationship. Without a daily departing to desolate places, we will frustrate relationships. We're takers, demanders, complainers, grumblers, consumers. But when we begin to pass back through those relationships that Jesus gives us, we begin to be givers, lovers, caregivers, peacemakers, like, like Jesus but it's in that personal time with him that we find identity. Like Jesus. Lives and souls to him for whom we were made to know him and to enjoy him and to give him away. Let's pray together. Just before I pray, I want us to do something. It's a lot this morning. It's the culmination of the, of the series. But, I, I, you know, as, as important as contextualizing discipleship is and disciple making is, the most important thing is time, your personal time alone with Jesus. It empowers every other thing in your life. And we can pat ourselves on the back for all good things. But if you're not spending time 
with Jesus, just know you are emptying of yourself. So I want you to make today, I want you to make a commitment, a personal commitment. And you don't have to tell anybody else about it. But I want you, if you will, I want you to make, a, if, you wanna, if you want some accountability, I, I don't mind knowing. But I would like for you to make a commitment that from beginning today, you're going to begin to give God the very best of your time. If it's the first part of the day, if it's the middle part of the day, you're going to retreat to a desolate place. Begin thinking right now of what that place looks like for you. A closed room with no inspiration, just the presence of God. What would it look like to not to need the inspiration of a beautiful view or a birds chirping, but just solitude? Oh, it's terrifying until you begin to practice it. So it doesn't have to be long. It doesn't have to be long. You just have to be able to be engaged in that moment. Don't let everybody else do your homework because it won't count for your transformation. So that's the invitation today. I want us to sit. I want us to bow our heads. I want us to close our eyes. And for those of you who are willing, who, who haven't, you know, many of you may already be practicing a private time of power with the Lord. But if you're not in the daily habit, make a commitment today and let's evaluate in one week. Let's see if you can tell a difference in your life and your life giving. Lord, we love you and we thank you for modeling so perfectly where power is. I pray that we would cast down every excuse every barrier, every distraction, and simply empty ourselves before you. We, we call you our Lord and Master, and yet we have no time for you. So help us, Lord, to, de to develop a daily time where we give you our very best and begin to watch every other relationship empowered. Help us to be less needy and more to give. We love you, Lord. We say that with our lips. I pray today we mean it with our hearts. Today we confess that we've tried to be like Jesus without Jesus. And I pray today that we would take that and we would nail that to his cross. Thank you for the forgiveness that we find in you to begin again and your mercies are new every morning. So help us today, Lord, to, to begin to be more and more personally, not just belong to a church who knows Jesus, but may we personally find our identity in him. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you need help finding or taking your next step, send us a message at hello at myconnectchurch.cc.